Amen. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> I have to say this. I'm thinking about that song, and, and there's a verse that came to mind. And this speaks to our hearts. I don't know where you are this morning with your faith. I don't know where you are with your struggles, whether you consider yourself to be stable in the Lord or not. I just don't know where you are with your faith. But think about that song and the opportunity that it affords us. That song allows me to come to church and wear my faith on my sleeve. And I can worship the Lord. It talks about loving God and actually freely worshiping Him intentionally. Didn't it not? To, it affords us, it allows us this opportunity to freely worship Him. And when I think about that, and I think sometimes back on some of my struggles from time to time, because we all have struggles, right? Anybody here without any struggles? Uh, that, that would be a no, huh? No, no. We, we all have struggles, right? Think about Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You don't have to go there. This is not part of the message, but think about it. it Paul the Apostle speaks to us concerning the grace of God and those of, us, those of us who are in Christ Jesus today. It says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It says, there is no condemnation. So in spite of what your struggle is today, think about that, that song. And remember the liberty, the opportunity that we are given by the Holy Spirit according to the grace of God, according to the Word of God. We can freely worship Him this morning because He allows us to do so. Just think about that. We serve a risen Savior, do we not? Amen, somebody. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a mighty God, a mighty God. And that reality alone should trump the struggle that you're dealing with this morning, the issue that you're struggling with here this morning, the physical ailment, the physical sickness that you're struggling with, the loss of a loved one, the difficulties that you may, may be having at work or at school or what have you, the reality of God's amazing existence should trump everything else. I'm not referring to the president, by the way. But just think of it. <laughs> that was the delayed reaction, wasn't it? <laughs> but, just, but just think about it. We have an amazing opportunity to serve the Lord. Amen. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at a passage related with this week's Bible reading. And the message this morning is titled, Let My People Go. And I want to talk about an amazing account derived from the book of Exodus, that actually it's the reason why you and I are able to celebrate the way we do on Sunday morning. We come to church freely, right? And we come ready, willing, and able to worship the Lord. I don't know about you, but I come ready to worship the Lord. I lay my burdens down. I put aside my issues, my struggles, my wife's distractions, <laughs> mm, watch out, Rick. I put everything aside, right? Because I want to worship the Lord. I want to get it right this morning. But the question is, why is it that you and I have the liberty to worship the Lord so freely? Why do we have the liberty to do so? Just, just think about that as we go through this message this morning. Because the account that we are going to read about here this morning in the book of Exodus 
it speaks to the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ today. It's a type, a shadow, or an image of things to come from their perspective. But you and I are able to look back to the cross and rejoice in the wonderful liberties that we have in the Lord today. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 5. And by the way, if you look in your bulletin, you will find this leaflet. It has the title of the message. It has the passage. And you are, of course, free to use this to take notes this morning. It's in your bulletin. Exodus chapter 5 is on the screen 1 through 17. That's okay. You there? Say amen. And afterward, <coughs> Moses and Aaron went in. <coughs> Excuse me. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. So I apologize for the King James sex. It's the only one I have in front of me. <coughs> Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I, should, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, loose the people from their works? Get you unto your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters and the people and their officers, saying, You should no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the number of the bricks which they did make heretofore, you should lay, thank you, babe, you should lay upon them. You should not diminish anything thereof, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let their more, let their more work be laid upon the men, that they may labor therein. And let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out, and their officers, and they spoke to the people, saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye and get straw where you can find it, yet not any of your work shall diminish, shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters hastened them, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily task, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, whom, Pharaoh, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded, Wherefore have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today, as heretofore? 
Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servant? Why are you dealing with your servants in this way? There is no straw given unto the servants. And they say to us, Make brick, and behold, thy servants are beaten, but the fault is in thy own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and do sacrifice unto the Lord. Excuse me. Today we are going to consider the miraculous deliverance that took place so long ago and how you and I can apply this to our lives today. But I want you to think about this, this exodus. I want you to think about this passage and what is actually unfolding here. God is preparing Moses' heart. God is preparing Aaron's heart. God is preparing them to deliver a message to his people so that they as a nation, or rather, deduct that word nation because they're actually not a nation yet. Yes, Abraham was called. The children of Israel were gathered together, but they immediately went into Egypt and never became a nation. The Egyptians actually ruled over them, but they're preparing now. They're preparing now to exit the land of Egypt, and God is going to reconstitute them as a nation. This is extraordinary. And right before they were released, they were given instructions concerning the Passover lamb, how to sacrifice it, and what to do with the blood of the lamb. To apply it to the doorposts of every house, because the angel of death was going to pass by, and it was going to pass over every home where the blood was marked. Just imagine... The picture that God is creating here. Imagine the symbolism, the type, this, the typology as some people refer to it as. And what was going to unfold for you and I and the rest of mankind at the cross. Concerning this exodus, every article from a secular authority that I have read from over the years concerning the exodus from Egypt... Every article from a secular source, from a secular authority, not only denied the reality of the Exodus, but also denied the reality of the Red Sea crossing. And I've read lots of articles over the years from secular authorities because I just simply want to know what the atheist, what the secularist has to say about what we hold fast to be true from the Word of God. How many believe that God literally delivered His people from Egypt? Let me see your hand. How many believe that God literally delivered His people from total destruction at the hands of the Egyptians when He, when he parted the Red Sea? How many believe in that literal miracle? I do too. It actually happened. And guess what, people? The secular authorities are wrong. We, ha we actually have proof that the Red Sea occurrence actually took place. And I want to draw your attention to your screen. Look at the screen. What we have here is just an image. It's an image clearly of a Bible with the, with the parting of the Red Sea. Go on to the next one. Because I want to show you, I want to show you this is a deep sea diver. Not too long ago. And listen, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to do your homework on your own. And I want you to research. Just Google 
the Red Sea crossing. A number of years ago, Christian explorers were giving the permission by the Egyptian authorities to actually survey the bottom <coughs> of the Red Sea, the floor, the ocean floor, to survey it. And they were given per permission as long as the explorers gave their word in writing that they were not going to touch anything, much less remove anything. And so they started their dive. Go to the next screen, please. What do you see here? The ocean floor in just one area of the Red Sea floor, just one area is covered with coral. Just one area. The rest of the Red Sea, Red sea floor is actually smooth. It's like a, a, like a soot, if you will. It's white. It's very soft, very thin, like baby powder. And it's flat, except for one particular area. The area of this Red Sea floor where there amazingly is an ocean ridge. There's an ocean ridge that actually rises up. The, the area of seawater there is actually still pretty deep. But it was enough for the children of Israel to cross over from one side to the other. There's no other section in the Red Sea where they could have crossed. Because it's deeper than 500 feet, 5,000 feet. It's extremely deep, the Red Sea floor. And what we have here on the screen, I wish I had one of them laser things. What we have here is coral in, that has taken funny shapes and sizes. And the experts actually agree that because of the 90 degree angles, so on and so forth, it, the, what they have is this development of this coral over man-made artifacts. It was proven. I'm going to show you. Go on to the next one. This is a funny-shaped coral that's actually protruding, if you will, out of the ground on a straight angle, straight up, with funny angles going around. Go on to the next one so you can see what it actually is underneath. What the experts have done is that they've gone down with um, some sort of highly sophisticated x-ray equipment as well as some, some metal detecting equipment. And every, on every coral that they applied this equipment to, it beeped, it zapped, it did whatever it's supposed to do in the presence of alloy. And that's exactly what they discovered here. When they passed this equipment along that one funny-shaped coral, they actually measured out the dimensions of a hub. Go on to the next one. <clears throat> what do you see there? Funny-shaped coral, right? Coming out of the ground. It's perfectly round. It's perfectly round. Coral does not grow that way. Go on to the next one. What do you see? So it's round. And what do you see in the center of it? There's a broken hub in the middle of it. Keep going. Next one. How about that one? There's a round portion of it on the ground on the ocean floor. I wish I had the... The horizontal view, because I did have it, I didn't include it in the slides. So you have a round portion on the ground, then you have a straight axle shooting straight up, and the portion of core on top, the measurements are exactly the same. And guess what? The measurements, the, the science has been done, the research has been done. What we see here, or rather the dimensions that were taken from these artifacts, from these remains, are exact. To the old Egyptian technology in terms of the chariot wheels, the axles, etc. Go on to the next one. 
<coughs> and obviously this is a recreation. You see the wheel now on the bottom of it? Next one. See the axle? Next one. It's a perfect axle with the wheels of a chariot. Now what I didn't include in these slides was a recent discovery. It's an, a wheel of a chariot in pure gold. It wasn't solid gold. It was wood overladen with pure gold. And they couldn't remove it from the ocean floor because it, it was brittle. They, the, and be, besides, they couldn't touch it anyway. Egyptian authorities actually know that it's there, that it exists. And because it's gold, pure gold, coral did not grow on the surface of the mineral. But the wood underneath, you can see the slit and the wood rotted away. So it's just a thin top layer and bottom layer of the gold sitting on the bottom of the Red Sea floor. Next one, please. And the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army and he made the wheels of their chariots come off. Exodus chapter 14. That is the God that you and I serve. Now listen, I didn't need, personally, I did not need this proof to believe in the existence of my God. I didn't need this proof to believe in the biblical Exodus account, which, in fact, this, these remains, this evidence points to. It validates the Exodus account from Egypt, in my mind. How about yours? But if you think about it, you can't have one without the other. So if this evidence proves the Exodus, the Red Sea miracle, in my mind, it actually validates the Abrahamic covenant as well, which took place years prior. Because what happened at, in Egypt and this Exodus, it was an extension of God's covenant with the man of God, Abraham. And so if the Exodus holds true, then the Abrahamic covenant also holds true. And if the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant holds true, then the creation narrative that we read in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 must also be believed. And the reason why I state that is because every secular authority out there on the planet is doing everything they possibly can to keep this information from the hands of the populace. Why? Can you imagine? They would have to rewrite their textbooks. They would have to rewrite everything, and they've refused to do so. They want us to believe that we actually came from fish or monkeys or what have you, which is not true. And by the way, doesn't it take more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in God? There's absolutely no proof. No secular authority can ever point to having observed the survival of the fittest, to say the least. It's never been observed. One single-cell organism evolving into multiple-cell organism. It's just never been observed. And newsflash, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. The Exodus story, or the Exodus account... It is, in my mind, the most important event that took place in the Old Testament. And the ramifications you and I are still experiencing today. Listen to this quote 
from somebody that you may be familiar with, D.A. Carson. He says, The exodus of God's people out of Egypt is the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. It confirms a whole lot of things. God's covenant with Moses, God's covenant with Abraham, the creation narrative, and it allows you and I today, looking back at all of those events, to actually believe in the existence of the God who has revealed Himself to you. How many of you, with a show of hands, have been convinced of God's existence because of His work, His precious work on your heart? How many? How many? Come on, let me see, let me see. Stephen got two hands in the air. I don't know if he's stretching or yawning or, or if he believes it that much. But I believe it. I know that he lives. For the Hebrews, the Exodus was a story of redemption and deliverance because they were actually literally freed from Egypt. They were actually there, according to the Word of God, over 400 years. Can you imagine being enslaved, being in bondage that long. And then all of a sudden, God miraculously delivered His people. For you and I, and the rest of mankind, this exodus from Egypt actually serves as a shadow or image of what was to come, what is, what exists today, and what we find today in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So let's go over this really quickly. In Genesis 3.15, we find God commences His redemptive plan for mankind. Genesis 3.15. Theologians refer to it as the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. It is referred to as proto-evangelium. I, re- I mentioned that once before. So in Genesis 17, God establishes a perpetual covenant with Abraham, but they did not become a nation just yet. In Exodus 12, we find that the Lord, through Moses, He reconstitutes His people, and they become the nation of Israel, especially after the observance of the Passover lamb. But consider this. If you will, what actually takes place after a long ordeal, after a long Old Testament period, what actually unfolds for you and I today, what develops is, in effect, the climax of God's redemptive plan, namely the cross. He started his redemptive process. Restoring mankind back to himself in Genesis 3.15. In fact, the Bible actually gives us the impression clearly, explicitly, that that process began in eternity past. But in terms of the written word, as you and I know it today, he speaks of this plan in Genesis 3.15. And it unfolds throughout the entire Old Testament. And it culminates, or it climaxes, because the process is not finished yet, right? But it culminates at the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything that took place in that Exodus account, if you consider it, the observance of the Passover lamb, the literal Exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law in the wilderness, and the preparation for the crossing of the River Jordan and into the Promised Land. All of it is found at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
as well. And this is what I want to consider with you here this morning. At the cross, number one, we are granted freedom from our Egypt. How many are free this morning from your Egypt? Listen, I don't know about you, but I'm free from my Egypt. Secondly, the truth of the gospel message is ratified. Jesus spoke a message. He spoke a word. He spoke this message that was contrary to what they were used to hearing. He spoke the gospel. The good news, and it was unfolding before their eyes because Jesus was actually able to perform miracles that they flat out couldn't understand was possible by any man. He was trying to to tell the masses, he was trying to speak this message to the world that I am that I am. I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of your text. In fact, he had a conversation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because they were sad, you see. And the lawyers and all those other people that he had a conversation with. And in John 5.39, he says to them, he kind of rebuked them. He says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which speak of me. I mean, hello, I'm right here. He said, can you lower me down a little bit? He says, I'm right here, I'm right here. And they miss him. Just a little bit. Lo mira. Yeah. Un poquito, just a little bit. So point number one is free at last. Free at last. I remember the, the sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. When was that? You remember when that was, Michael? Nineteen sixty three? Maybe. I have a dream. That I have a dream speech. So this point is free at last. And listen listen to this. This point actually, this point actually it's about our freedom in Christ and how it points back to the Passover and the ensuing Exodus. I want to read a few verses for you <clears throat> from Exodus chapter twelve because I want you to see this. <clears throat> actually have it in front of me. You can have your Bible back. Exodus 12. And I want to read select verses. I'm going to read verse 3, 5 through 7, and finally verse 13. Remember, I'm talking about being free, but being free in Christ. But I want to share some other verses with you after this one. And I want you to make the connection between our freedom in Christ today with the Passover that took place so long ago. Exodus 12, verse 3. It says, To all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6. And you should keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. 13. The blood should be a sign for you on the houses where, where you are 
And when I see the blood, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now that this this one particular passage speaks to their literal event so long ago. it, It marks the beginning of their freedom. But that land, the land that we're reading about in this one particular passage is actually pointing to something far greater. It served as a shadow of Christ. Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And I want you to consider this in John 1.29. Just listen to it. You don't have to look it up. It says, this is John the Baptist. He's baptizing people. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ shows up. And listen to what John the Baptist says in John 1.29. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a glorious day that was indeed. When Jesus Christ shows up right there at the banks of the River Jordan. John the Baptist is going about his business. The forerunner of Jesus Christ. He pre- he's preaching this, this message of repentance. And the Christ himself shows up and he begins to speak volumes in the ears of everybody that would hear whatever it is he had to say and everything that Jesus Christ had to say pointed to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy right there in his life over 300 prophecies were fulfilled not this setting alone I'm talking about his three years of ministry his whole life over 300 prophecies with, with multiple details in every single one of them pointing to everything that transpired in the Old Testament. In Mark 14, 12, we find that Jesus Christ actually died on Passover. In Hebrews 4, 15, it says that Jesus is our spotless lamb. In Hebrews 9, 11 through 15, it says that Jesus, the perfect lamb, he ratifies the new covenant and offers salvation to all mankind. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, the, the ultimate Passover lamb. And in Romans chapter 8, 2 through 4, they're up on your screen. You can write them down because I'm not going to read the verses. We don't have enough time. But in Romans 8, 2 to 4, it says the first Passover marked the release of the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. But Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, marks the release from the slavery of sin. And I love the way Paul the Apostle talks about this in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5, Romans, Romans chapter 6. And then in Romans chapter 7, he highlights this struggle between the flesh and the spirit. But then in Romans chapter 8, he talks about this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Why is that possible in our lives today? Because of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And we read about that in the book of Exodus. And by the way, how many of you read the book of Exodus this past week? Amen. Many of you, many of you. So moving forward this week right now, our reading is actually the book of Mark. The book of Mark. You, you, you started already, right? Okay, you don't sit there 
reading the book of Mark. You're supposed to be listening to me. <laughs> point number two, the truth will set you free. That point number one has to do with the Passover lamb, right? Now remember, we're talking about this great exodus theme. I want to back up just a little bit because I, I want to make sure that everybody understands clearly what we're talking about here this morning. The exodus served as a shadow, a type of things to come in Christ Jesus. And the first theme, the first of three major themes in the book of, Ex- in the book of Exodus is this observance of the Passover lamb. The second one is the giving of the law. And then the third one is this sanctification, if you will, this purging, if you will, that takes place. Because the Bible clearly states, because of their rebellion... And not believing the report of the spies, everybody who exited Egypt 20 and over was scheduled to die in the desert. And indeed, they did. The spies went into the land for 40 days. They came back with their report. Joshua and Caleb says, absolutely, we got this. The other ten said, no, we're going to die. We're going to die. And God demanded a year for every day those spies spied out the land. Those 40 years in the wilderness, a journey that probably should have only taken 8 to 11 days, 8 to 15 days, something like that, if not less. That's just what some theologians say. It took them 40 years because God was sanctifying them. That second theme... The giving of the law, the Mosaic covenant, speaks volumes concerning the message of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I adhere to today. So the second point is the truth will set you free. And this point is about the gospel message. Let me give you in Galatians 3.24, the Bible says, tells us that, It served as a schoolmaster. Talking about the law. That the law served as a schoolmaster pointing mankind to Jesus Christ. This is what David Mathis. I was doing some reading this past week. He spoke about, he was talking about Colossians chapter 1 verse 6. Verse 6. Colossians 1 6. And David Mathis was trying to reconcile in my mind. The idea of the exodus and this liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. And he says, the grace of God in truth is the shock that brings a dead soul to life. And the charge that keeps it living. The gospel is the gas that awakens and energizes the human heart. And he goes on to say, it's all wonderful and good to learn various truths from the Bible. And there are many crucial truths to learn. But we must not miss or minimize the one truth of the gospel, the word of truth. The word of truth. Why was the law given in the Old Testament? As I stated already, it served as a schoolmaster. But ultimately, it served to expose our sin. Can you imagine What our lives would be like today if the law had not been given? Can you imagine what our lives would be like today if we did not know right from wrong? Can you imagine what our lives would be like? 
We'd be able to freely take from our neighbor. We'd be able to freely kill our neighbor. We'd be able to freely do whatever it is we want to do this side of heaven because there won't be anything telling us otherwise. But God spoke. He gave his law to them. And the law ultimately pointed to the gospel message in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1.13 it reads, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Talking about the word of God this morning. How about this one? In Colossians 1 verses 3 through 6. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Is there anything this side of heaven like the word of God? Anything at all? There's absolutely nothing like the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, it says, how many know Hebrews 4.12? It says, for the word of God is quick and powerful or is active and alive, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder or the separation of the soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, it slices and dices, it figures us out, it exposes us to ourselves. It's because of the gospel message that I'm able to stand here recognizing that I need Jesus in my life as my Lord and my Savior. How many are there as well? How many today recognize that you need Jesus Christ? Because of His spoken word, there's this conviction that sweeps the entire planet. Did you know that? In the Proverbs over and over again, this one particular proverb, I think it's Proverbs 15, verse 1. It says, wisdom cries out in the streets. Wisdom cries out at the marketplaces, at the entrance and exits of the city gates. Wisdom cries out. God is always, always trying to draw our attention to Him. Because God is always speaking. He's always communicating. And what a wonderful truth this is. And we find it first. In the book of Exodus, in the type of the law. How about this one verse? I'm sure everybody knows it. John 8:32. It says that the truth has the capacity to free us. That's just a paraphrase. It says, and you shall... Oh, wow, that was sweet, that was sweet. One more time, one more time. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall... The truth shall set you free. Because it has power in and of itself. It has inherent power. And it's the only thing this side of heaven that actually possesses the capacity to alter the human spiritual DNA, if you will. If you want transformation, it's not going to come any other way. 
If you want to be different than the way you are today, you need Jesus Christ in your life. We need to allow Him to speak into our lives because nothing else can actually transform our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. These verses reveal that the Word of God purifies our soul because according to Peter, he says it's an incorruptible seed. Imagine that. Any other seed you can possibly possess this side of heaven will die, can in fact die and wither away, but not the seed of the Word of God. It's an incorruptible seed. Listen to what it says. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. And the last point, the wilderness. I just simply titled it the wilderness. Because the third theme that we find in the book of Exodus is the wilderness experience. They did not enter the promised land. In the book of Exodus. There was a preparation stage in the book of Exodus. Twenty and over. Everybody twenty and older died in the wilderness. God was purging His people because of unbelief. But essentially, God was preparing those who were 19 and under to inherit the promised land. It's what he was actually doing. It's the process of sanctification, if you will. And I just simply called it the wilderness. Numbers 14 speaks of why the Hebrews had to wander in the wilderness. You might want to write that down if you want reference to what I just stated a few moments back. Why they, the 20 and older did not enter in. And because they disbelieved in God, it's why they didn't make it in. But in effect, a purging took place. Let me ask you this. If we can consider that wilderness experience as a purging, as a sanctification of God's people, what does the New Testament say about sanctification? Can we actually discover the same things in the Old Testament, in that one particular book, in the New Testament? Is this a viable reality in the New Testament? Purging or sanctification? Absolutely, it is. We find it all over the New Testament. And from my perspective, sanctification is the missing element of the church. We don't like to talk about sanctification. We certainly do not enjoy listening to sermons about sanctification. But what does the New Testament say about sanctification? Two things. Number one, it speaks of the translation, if you will, that occurs when we get saved. I mentioned this briefly once before. I'm going to do it briefly again as well because of time. But in Colossians, if you're writing down, write this verse down. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. 
It speaks of the translation or the sanctification that takes place instantaneously when we call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. He translates us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're no longer a part of Satan's camp. We are now a part of Jesus' camp. That's Colossians 1.13. But secondly... It speaks of the changes that a believer is supposed to undergo. Did you hear that, church? Sanctification speaks to the changes that you and I are supposed to be experiencing this side of heaven. Write this verse down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It's a unique verse. It says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you that you should abstain from fornication. What is fornication? Anybody? Huh? Sex before marriage, right? And a host of other things, right? It's, if you're not married, don't, don't touch her. If you're not married, don't touch him. It's what the Bible has to say. Now, granted, we're not, I'm not even going there. This is not, this is not the time or the place, right? Thank God for His grace, because He would have killed us all a long time ago. Amen, church? Yeah, you would have been the first, right? You, 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 you. You would have been the first. Thank God for His grace. So the point is not to present some legalistic concept. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm talking about the missing element. We should be talking about the changes that we, as God's holy people, should be undergoing. How about this verse? In Hebrews chapter 12... Write this down. 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Wow! It's actually right there. Sanctification. It's a part of God's plan for our lives. It's a theme in the book of Exodus, and it should be a reality in our lives today. <clears throat> I gotta, I'm just slicing and dicing through here. I'm looking at the clock, and it's like my worst enemy right now. Let's just recap. Let's just recap. We talked about the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. We talked about the giving of the law in the wilderness. And we also talked about the preparation. God's preparation of His people to enter into the promised land. Those three themes dominate the book of Exodus. Those three themes are found all over the entire New Testament. You might want to put Romans chapter 6 in there. It's a reference to freedom from the slavery of sin. Romans 8.1 Freedom from the slavery of sin. Then we talked about the importance of the Word of God. The Word of God has set you free, which was likened to the law in the Old Testament. And lastly, we talked about sanctification, which you and I, we are supposed to yield our lives over to change. Because God wants to produce this change in our lives. Will you stand with me? Let us pray together.
When I have the worship team to please come forward, we can sing a song together. Remember, as we enter this this next week, we're going to be reading through the book of the book of Mark. How many of you? How many of you have been experiencing a change of heart through all of this reading? How many of you? Yeah, that's a lot of you, and I'm sure every 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 one of you would put your hands up. If you're doing any type of reading whatsoever, I'm sure it's changing your life because God is using His Word to change your perspective and mine. Amen, somebody. And that's what, that's what it's all about. We want to be different, right? It's difficult. It's difficult this side of heaven to live life as God would want us to if we're not acquainted with His Word. Does that make sense? It's difficult because if I'm not in the Word of God then by default I'm going to yield my mind over to the voices of this world. You know what that means, right? There are a lot of voices in this world that are vying for your attention and mine. That's why the reading of the Word of God is so important. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your Word. We thank you so much for your truth. Father, thank you so much for the time that you allow us to be in fellowship with one another just like this. Father, help us to understand these truths in spite of my frail way, Lord God, of presenting the Word to Your people. Help us just, just simply remember, Father, all the wonderful things that we discover in the Word of God because we are in Christ Jesus. This freedom from sin... You passed over your children in the Old Testament because of the blood of the Lamb. And in the New Testament, we had this, this, this beautiful freedom in Christ Jesus because of the blood that He shed for us at the cross. We thank you so much for that. You gave your people then the law. Today you give us the gospel message, the truth of the Word of God, which is able to transform our lives. And Father, we thank you so much for that. And also, the Old Testament speaks about this sanctification process that your people went through so long ago and what it means for your people here today. Father, you said, the Bible says that you are holy and therefore we should be holy. Help us to yield our lives over to you, Father. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name, and God's people say, Sing, let's sing your worship. Take my 
so much for this morning. Thank you for allowing us to spend this time this morning in fellowship with you and with one another. Father, until you bring us back here again, deliver us in peace. Go with us, Father. Lead us. Guide us. Certainly instruct us. Help us to be the children of God that we are supposed to be. Help us to live a life of examples to those who or in our families, at our jobs, and in our communities. Father, we thank you so much for these things. And we pray in Jesus' name and God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you Wednesday. See you next Sunday.